This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 6, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We will be continuing the story of the second fitna. And just to catch you up real quick, on the last episode, we talked about how Hussein and Ibn Zubair had refused to give the pledge to the new caliph, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, and then they both fled from, Me- from Medina to Mecca. Once in Mecca, Hussein sent his cousin Muslim ibn Aqil to Kufa to see how things were because he was receiving a lot of letters from the Kufans telling him to come on to Kufa and help him out. So he sends his cousin up there. So this episode, inshallah, will discuss the events in Kufa while Muslim ibn Aqil was there. So... As you know, it took me a while to get this show ready, um, almost a month since the last show, I think more than a month since the last true episode. And that's because this show, this episode at least, is longer than normal. It is a very complex story. I generally tend to limit my words to 5,000. I think I went over 7,500 in this one. So there are lots of characters in here. Uh, just try to keep up. Lots of Arabic, lots of characters. Try to keep up as best you can, inshallah. Send me questions if you have any. We'll do the best we can, inshallah, with what we have. All right, please stay tuned after the show as we uh, discuss and go into some of the insights, some of my insights into the individuals mentioned in today's show and try to see some of their motivations behind the things that they did. So once again, as I often do, I often ask you to please support the Islamic History Podcast. You can do so by making a pledge on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com slash islamic history and so with that we are now going to get into the show this will be season three episode six of the islamic history podcast muslim and obedullah al-kufa setina sanatu hijriya kufa 60ah you don't have to go, said Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid. My people will protect you from the son of the bastard. I know, said Muslim ibn Aqil. But this is for the best. Your house is the first place the governor will suspect. Muslim ibn Aqil was overwhelmed by the love and support the city had shown for Hussein ibn Ali. He had only been in Kufa a month, but already thousands of people had pledged their support to Hussein. Considering how many people he'd yet to meet, Muslim estimated Hussein had at least 60,000 supporters in all of Iraq. The only thing that concerned him was the arrival of Abedullah ibn Ziyad from Basra. The tyrant in Damascus had appointed him governor of Iraq. After leaving Mukhtar's house, Muslim ibn Aqil wandered through the streets of Kufa. He was unfamiliar with the city and had to ask for directions several times. Assalamu alaikum, Hani ibn Odwa. Muslim exclaimed cheerfully when he found the house. May Allah bless your home and your family. Wa alaykum salam replied Hani, much less enthusiastically. Allah knows best if you bring blessings or curses upon my house. Muslim laughed. 
Hani ibn Odwa was an older man and way too worrisome. He had once been a staunch supporter of Ali. But since Ali's death, Hani had benefited from the amiable relationship with Banu Umayyah. <laughs> Don't worry, brother. I won't be here long and I won't bring any trouble to you or your family. Hani grumbled but stepped aside so Muslim could enter. Muslim understood his reluctance. Hani was taking a great risk by allowing him in his home. The entire city was buzzing with the excitement that Hussein was on his way. Obeidullah's appointment was Banu Umayyah's reaction to that threat. Muslim had to get things moving quickly. There was no telling what the governor was plotting. Hence, after taking some time to settle down in Hani's home, Muslim wrote a letter to Hussein urging him to make haste to Kufa. 18,000 men have given you the pledge, he wrote to Hussein. All of the people are with you. Hurry and come to Kufa. Mujtami al-Kufa Kufa Society Ever since the early days of Uthman's caliphate, Kufa had been a difficult city to govern. There were many factors behind its restless nature. Part of it was due to Kufa's origin as a garrison city. Other factors were its rapid growth and its distance from the capitals, first Medina and then Damascus. But the biggest factor contributing to Kufa's instability was its people. As a garrison city, the initial purpose of Kufa was to supply and support Muslim soldiers involved in the war against the Sassanid Empire. However, this military function led to future problems. Traditionally, Arab armies were organized based on tribes and clans. This motivated the individual soldiers to fight harder since no group wanted to be known as the weak link that lost a battle. During the time of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, this system fell out of use. The Prophet's armies were not large enough to allow such divisions. Furthermore, the Messenger of Allah preferred to emphasize the religious unity of the Muslims rather than rely on tribalism. This system worked while the Prophet was alive, but as the empire expanded, the tribal system came back into favor. Despite its drawbacks, tribalism made it much easier to mobilize large armies. The soldiers that camped at Kufa remained segregated by tribe. These camps eventually turned into neighborhoods based on those same tribal divisions. While there was warfare and a constant rotation of soldiers, this did not pose a problem. But as the rate of conquest slowed down and people settled in Kufa permanently, problems began to arise. Caliph Omar ibn Khattab, who ordered the establishment of Kufa, hoped it would grow in a similar fashion as Medina had under Prophet Muhammad. Like Medina, Omar planned for Kufa to become a city of migration. In doing so, he encouraged thousands of Arabs to populate the newly conquered regions of Iraq. But Omar also wanted to preserve the political authority of Medina. In doing so, he appointed fellow Sahaba as governors and distributed stipends based upon Islamic hierarchy. This hierarchy gave early Muslims, namely the Muhajidun and the Ansar, a higher share than later Muslims. After that, the stipends were distributed based upon conversion to Islam and military service. At the bottom of the pyramid were the recent converts and those who had never fought in battle. In the early years of Kufa, this was not a problem. As long as there were lands to conquer, there was always a need for young soldiers hungry to earn higher stipends, land of their own, and a little bit of glory. 
When Uthman became the caliph, it fell on him to put Omar's plan into action. But by this time, the attitude in Kufa had begun to sour. First, most of the Sassanid Empire had been conquered and military adventures to the east ground to a halt. Those young men with small stipends who would normally be on the front line were now stuck in Kufa with little money and a lot of time on their hands. Furthermore, the people of Kufa were beginning to tire of Medina's control. Omar's forceful personality and overall popularity allowed him to keep the city in line. But Uthman was older, more lenient, and tended to delegate authority to others. The Kufans resisted his efforts to organize Kufa based on Omar's vision. And even though the conquests in Persia ceased, the migration to Kufa did not. Thousands of Arabs continued to pour into Kufa every year. This created a new dynamic that Omar did not anticipate and Uthman was unprepared to handle. There were several overlapping social levels in Kufa. There were the original settlers, usually former soldiers with good stipends and land of their own, who felt they deserved some say in the city's governance. Then there were the tribal leaders who migrated to Kufa and had enjoyed a certain level of authority back home. They arrived in Kufa with the same expectations. And finally, there were the newcomers. These newcomers could not distinguish themselves in battle. They did not enjoy the honor of being a Sahaba nor being among the first in Kufa. And as poor young men, they often did not hold any rank back home either. These newcomers also put a strain on the stipend system. It was traditional to give a Sharif, or noble, a lump sum of money to split among his clan. The Sharif was expected to divide the money among his clan according to the precedent system established by Omar. When newcomers arrived, the stipends for the clan was not increased. Instead, the Sharif had to lower everyone's share in order to give something to the new arrival. These problems were just beginning during Omar's last years, but exploded during Uthman's reign. With Kufa's growth, Uthman struggled to find a governor who could keep the city under control. Uthman tried to relieve this pressure by launching new wars into Central Asia. But unlike the early years, many of these campaigns ended in failure. The Muslims were at times able to gain footholds in some new territories. Most of the time, these conquests were tenuous at best. The natives only gave nominal submission and, more often than not, would rebel against the Muslims within a year. The lack of military action, the restlessness of young men with no authority or wealth, and the inability to adapt tribal culture to new circumstances led to Kufa becoming a very unstable city. Al-Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya Kufa, 60AH The cool breeze on the outskirts of the city started to pick up and made the chilly desert air even cooler. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad took a step closer to his camel to get some protection from the wind. He was alone and wore Yemeni clothes that fit in just right in Kufa. Many Kufans were second and third generation Yemenis who arrived during the reign of Caliph Omar. Ubaidullah's turban was wrapped around his face in the Yemeni style as well. Only his dark eyes and the bridge of his nose were visible. After what seemed hours, he saw a lone figure approaching from the distance. Not sure who it was, Ubaidullah reached for his walking cane, wishing he had a sword instead. The figure drew closer and Ubaidullah's anxiety got the best of him. 
Who goes there? State your name, he demanded. I am a maula looking for the maiwali, the man replied. Obedullah relaxed. It was Ma'akil, his maula. Assalamu alaikum, said Obedullah. What news do you have? Muslim Ibn Akil is still recruiting for Hussein. He has moved out of Mukhtar's house, but now he's operating out of Hani Ibn Urwa's home. Obedullah knew Hani Ibn Urwa. His father had treated him very well when he was governor. Do you think anyone suspects you? Not at all, Ma'akil replied. Everyone is talking about Hussein, and some are even boasting of their pledges. I gave them the money and my pledge, and they accepted me right away. And what about Hussein? No one knows for sure. Some say he's on his way, others say he's still in Mecca. All I know for sure is that Muslim wrote him a letter telling him to come to Kufa. Obedullah nodded, but remained silent. There's something else you should know. Sharik is there also. That surprised Obedullah. Sharik? Why? He's become very ill and isn't expected to recover. Make sure he doesn't notice you, said Obedullah, troubled by the news. Ma'akil shook his head. <laughs> Don't worry. He stays in the back room and from what I hear, he's too sick to move. You've done well, said Obedullah. Keep me informed. Obedullah walked away, leading his camel by the bridle while Ma'akil went in the other direction. When Obedullah first came to Kufa, he wore the same Yemeni outfit with his face covered. It was broad daylight at that time, and as he rolled through the streets on his camel, the people mistook him for Hussein and kept greeting him as son of the Messenger of Allah. Most of those people had not seen Hussein in almost 20 years. Many had never seen him at all. They did not know what they were pledging to, nor the trouble they were courting. Obedullah was unnerved by their loyalty to Ali's family. Hussein may have been the Prophet's grandson, but he was also a rebel. The young people were being foolish. Obedullah knew that. Take off a few heads and they would get back in line. But the older men, like Hani ibn Urwa and Muqta ibn Abi Ubaid, they should have known better. The Shi'atu Ali were beaten. They had given their pledge to Yazid ibn Muawiyah, and they knew the consequences of breaking that pledge. Were all the Shia so untrustworthy? Of course not. His own father had once worked for Ali, and Obedullah knew many Shia in Basra who remained loyal. Sharik ibn Alwa was one of them. As governor of Basra, Obedullah had done many good things for Sharik and raised him to a high position in the city. There was no way a man as honorable as Sharik would break his pledge and side with the rebels. Hayyul Madhij, Al Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya. The Madhij District, Kufa, 60 AH. You must kill him, said Shadik, grabbing Muslim Ibn Akil's sleeve. Do not underestimate the son of the bastard. Shadok laid back on the mat, his eyes bright with intensity. Muslim watched the man's chest rise and fall. Each breath was heavy, raspy, and choked with phlegm. Kneeling next to him was Hani ibn Urwa, who looked more worried than normal. Shadok had come from Basra with Arbedala. 
and though the governor trusted him, Muslim knew he was a diehard Shia. Unfortunately, Shalik did not have much time left. The sickness he contracted on the road to Kufa had gotten worse and nothing seemed to help. Agreed, said Muslim, but how should we do it? Shadok tried to speak but was overcome by a fit of violent coughing. His face turned purple as he hacked up blood and mucus. Muslim waited patiently while Shadok coughed and sputtered. When Abedullah hears that I'm sick, he said, catching his breath, he'll come to visit me. You hide behind that curtain with your sword at the ready. When I, gi- <coughs> when I give the signal, come out, and <coughs> come out and take off his head. What will be the signal? Shadok thought for a moment, then said, I'll ask for a drink of water. Please, please, brothers, don't do this, said Hani nervously. Don't kill him in my house. My children and my wife sleep here. <sighs> if not here, then where? asked Muslim Ibn Akil. The pressure was mounting on Muslim. He did not know if Hussein had gotten his letter yet, nor when he planned to leave for Kufa. Meanwhile, Ubaidullah was already making moves. The day after he arrived in Kufa, he called the Ashraf to a meeting at the masjid where he warned them against rebellion. The governor had announced strict punishments for anyone suspected of treason. He promised to use the whip and sword against all enemies of the regime. He ordered the Sharif of each tribe to inspect their people. They were to report everyone they did not know and anyone they suspected of treason. The governor warned that if any unreported rebels were found, the Sharif of that tribe would be crucified and their diwan cancelled. Nonetheless, Muslim Ibn Aqil still believed there was time. Despite Ubaidullah's threats, he believed Hussein would be victorious. But he had to get here quickly. If Hussein got to Kufa, the people would rally around him, overthrow Ubaidullah, and finally bring justice back to this community. Al-Haram, Makatul Mukarrama, Sitina Sanatul Hijriya The Sacred Precinct, Mecca, 60 AH Hussein was leaving the mosque after the evening prayer when his cousin confronted him. The people are saying you're going to Iraq, said Ibn Abbas. That is true, replied Hussein. I plan to leave in two days. May Allah have mercy on you, said Ibn Abbas, shaking his head. Have the Kufans killed their governor? Uh, No, said Hussein, surprised by the question. Have they shunned the tax collectors? Um, No. Have they driven out Banu Umayyah and all their supporters? (sighs) No. Then these people are not serious. They are inviting you to war, but they haven't taken steps to ensure your victory. Hussein did not like Ibn Abbas's dire tone, but he knew his cousin meant well. So he smiled and simply replied, I will leave that to Allah and we'll see what happens. Hussein hurried away, leaving Ibn Abbas behind him. Ibn Abbas had been Ali's governor of Basra and he knew the Iraqis. But Ibn Abbas had not read Muslim Ibn Akhil's letter. He had not gone far when Ibn Zubair sidled up next to him. The word about town is that you're going to Kufa, said Ibn Zubair. Hussein chose his words carefully. My people are there. They've invited me to come to them. We do need some changes in this community, said Ibn Zubair. We are the sons of the Muhajirun, and we should be the ones running the empire. If I had followers like yours, I wouldn't need any other help. When Hussein did not reply, Ibn Zubair continued. 
Of course, if you were to stay here, you could still be successful. There'd be no one to oppose you. He wants me gone, but he can't come out and say it, thought Hussein. He knows he will never have success in the Hijaz so long as I'm here. No, said Hussein. I'm going to Iraq. That's where my father's supporters are. The rest I'll leave to Allah. With that, Hussein turned a corner and departed. Hayul Madhij al Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya. The Madhij District, Kufa, 60 AH. Was he like this when we left Basra? Abedullah asked his servant, Mehran. They were in Hani ibn Adwa's home, paying Shadik a sick visit. Abedullah felt strange being in the rebel headquarters, almost like he was betraying the regime himself. It seems to have started just after leaving Basra, replied Mehran. May Allah give you health and strength, Abedullah said, offering what he hoped was a reassuring smile. Shadok responded with a spate of painful coughs. Is our host treating you well? Abedullah asked when the coughing ceased. Yes, yes, <coughs> replied Shadok. Hani ibn Udwa has been, <coughs> has been very good to me. I'm sure he has, replied Abedullah. Then he turned to Hani and said, I haven't seen you at the palace of late. Is everything all right? Y yes, Hani stammered. Alhamdulillah, uh, all is well. You must come visit us soon, said Abedullah, sitting on the mat next to Shadok. We have so much to catch up on. Before Hani could answer, Shadok let loose another round of vicious coughing. This is the decree of Allah, said Shadok. The coughing hurts my throat so much. If someone could bring me a drink of water. Hani made a strange sound, but did not move. Such a rude rebel, thought Abedullah. He won't even get water for his sick guest. I'm very thirsty, said Shadok louder this time. I could use some water. Still, Hani did not move. What are you waiting for? Shadok yelled at a curtain across the room. Will you not give me a drink of water? This man is delirious, said Abedullah. How long has he been like this? May Allah have mercy on him, said Hani. He's been like this for days. Give me some water, Shadok yelled at the curtain. I must have water now. Mehran leaned over and whispered to Abedullah. We have to go. Now, Abedullah sensed the urgency in his servant's voice. He grabbed his cane and hurried out the door. Mehran explained once they were outside. Someone was hiding behind that curtain with a sword and I think he meant to kill you. Abedullah was stunned. He had hoped it was just a coincidence that Shadok took residence at the rebel headquarters. He did not want to believe anything else. But the truth was obvious. It was most likely Muslim Ibn Akil that Mehran had seen behind the curtain. This treachery made one thing clear to Abedullah. The Sharia to Ali could not be trusted, no matter how much they smiled and pledged and promised. Shadok had better hope the sickness killed him. It would be a more merciful ending than the one Abedullah had in mind. Hayul Madhij al-Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya the Madhij District, Kufa, 60 AH. Hey, 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 what's going on? Muslim asked the young boy running behind the angry mob. The governor has killed Hani ibn Odawa, the boy yelled back. We're going to Dadal Imada to get vengeance for our brother. Muslim's heart caught in his throat. Oh, this is my fault, he thought. 
I should have killed Ubaidullah when I had the chance. Muslim had heard Shadik yelling for water, and he had the sword in hand, ready to strike. But two things held him back. First, Hani had insisted he did not want anyone killed in his home. And second, as evil as Ubaidullah was, he was a Muslim visiting a sick man. While Muslim hid behind the curtain and Shadik yelled for water, Ubaidullah's servant must have seen something. Perhaps a gust of wind moved the curtain, or he heard a suspicious noise, or he saw a shifting shadow. Whatever it was, their opportunity had been lost. The next morning, the governor summoned Hani ibn Udwa to the palace. Hani had refused to go until given a guarantee of safe conduct. Ubaidullah gave him a guarantee, but evidently did not honor it. By now, the governor had to know Muslim ibn Aqil was in Hani's home. He might even know Muslim was the one holding the sword behind the curtain. How long before Ubaidullah comes for me, thought Muslim. He had to move fast. Hani was dead, but the struggle must continue. The mission was all that mattered. Ubaidullah had made a mistake killing Hani ibn Udwa. This final injustice presented an excellent opportunity for the Shia to Ali. Thousands of men had pledged their support for Hussein. Now it was time to honor those pledges. If Muslim could organize them, perhaps they could storm the palace and force Ubaidullah to give up his power. Then Muslim would claim Kufa in Hussein's name and hold it until he arrived. Muslim imagined what would happen next. Word would get back to Damascus, but by then it would be too late. By the time Yazid ibn Muawiyah sent an army, Hussein would be in Kufa and the people would be solidly behind him. Once Hussein had Kufa, Basra would likely follow. And then there was Ibn Zubair in Mecca. Yazid would not be able to fight all three cities at once. Banu Umayyah would be restricted to Syria and Egypt. In Muslims' fantasy, Banu Umayyah would be torn apart fighting on two fronts while Hussein and Ibn Zubair negotiated with each other. Ibn Zubair might even pledge to Hussein if he was given governorship over the Hijaz. That would be perfect. Between the two of them, Banu Umayyah would fall and justice could reign over the Muslim Ummah once more. And it would all start with his mission to Kufa. Darul Imara Al-Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 60AH Ubaidullah peeked through the palace window, then jerked his head back just as a rock sailed up and smashed against the side. Outside, thousands of angry men surrounded the building. He had summoned Hani to the palace the day after his visit to Shadik. When Hani arrived, Ubaidullah accused him of plotting rebellion and murder. At first, Hani denied everything. But when Ubaidullah presented his spy, Hani began blaming everything on Muslim Ibn Aqil. Ubaidullah had felt the rage boiling inside of him. He couldn't believe Hani was trying to talk his way out of this one. The next thing Ubaidullah knew, the rage was upon him and everything had gone black. He remembered grabbing Hani's hair and beating him in the face with his cane. He remembered Hani's blood and teeth spattering against his hands. He remembered hitting Hani so hard, the iron tip of the cane popped off and flew across the room. When Ubaidullah's vision returned and the rage was gone, Hani lay unconscious on the palace floor. The sounds attracted a crowd outside, and before long, a rumor spread that he had killed Hani. Soon, a hundred Madhij men had gathered outside the palace. Ubaidullah invited the Madhij Sharif inside to inspect Hani in his cell. When the Sharif confirmed that Hani was in fact alive, the Madhij began to disperse. 
Abedullah then went to the masjid to pray and publicly dispel the rumors. That was when one of his shurta whispered something about an approaching army. Perplexed, Abedullah went outside and saw the strangest thing. Thousands of armed men were approaching the palace. Abedullah could make out a left wing and a right wing, and there were men on horseback like cavalry and others marching like infantry. Some of the men carried swords, but most only had sticks and farm tools. A few were even armed with rocks. This was not an army. It was something much worse. It was an uprising. Abedullah ran back to the palace, his shirtor right behind him. Inside, they'd locked and barricaded the doors. Muslims' army surrounded the palace and began pounding on the doors, throwing rocks at the windows, and screaming curses at Abedullah. Despite the obvious danger, Abedullah felt at ease, a gift from his father. Whenever things were at their worst, Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan would calm down and methodically think things through. And now, Abedullah was determined to do the same. He tuned out the mob shouting and cursing and walked back to the main hall. He looked around to see who was with him. There were 30 members of the shurta. A dozen were braced against the palace doors, desperately holding them closed. There were also some of the Ashraf of Kufa and Abedullah's servants and family. Abedullah sighed. It wasn't much, but he'd have to make do. He gathered the nobles and shorta about him. We cannot win this with strength and swords, he told them. We must use words and cunning. What does the governor suggest? asked Muhammad ibn Ashraf, a shorta captain. We must convince them to go back home, make promises, tell lies, threaten, bribe, whatever it takes. If you promise a thousand dinar, then I'll pay it on your behalf. If you threaten a hundred lashes, well, I'll pay that also. Most of those people don't even know what they're writing about, said Ibn Ashath in disgust. Exactly. Those are the ones we have to focus on. Now, listen to me. The men nodded their heads as Omeidullah laid out his plan. Hayul Kinda, Al Kufa, Setina Sanato Hijriya. The Kinda District, Kufa, 60 AH. Muslims stumbled through the dark streets of Kufa. He didn't know where he was, but he had a feeling he was in the Kinda District, the clan of Hujr ibn Adi. Those wretched Iraqis, he thought to himself. Those foolish, cowardly, wretched Iraqis. Everything had fallen apart and they were so close to success. After Hani's tribesmen had rushed to the palace, Muslim began calling on those who had pledged to Hussein. He went from door to door reminding them of their promise to protect Hussein. Obeidullah has killed another of Ali's Shia, he told them. We have to avenge his death and make the city safe for Hussein. The word spread like the wind. Within an hour, 4,000 men had assembled near the Mathij district. For a few moments, Muslim Ibn Akil actually felt like his uncle preparing for battle. He organized the men into ranks, he divided them into cavalry and infantry, and he gave them titles and commands. Then he drew his sword and led them towards the palace. It didn't matter they had no discipline and little training. It did not matter that most of their weapons were farm tools. It did not matter that his army was not much more than a glorified mob. All that mattered was that he was leading the first Shia army in almost 20 years. Muslim was so proud of his people. They were finally standing up to tyranny. 
The pent-up anger from years of abuse, despotism, and cruelty came pouring out. The people screamed and cursed and threw rocks at the palace. They pounded on the heavy doors. They cursed Obedullah and his father. They swore to behead every member of Banu Ameya. But as the sun crept along the sky and the siege dragged on, their spirits began to wane. People left to pray and never came back. Mothers came to their sons and begged them to come home. A rumor spread that an army from Syria was coming and hundreds melted away. Hundreds more left when they heard they might lose their stipends. Muslims' army dwindled from 4,000 to 500 to 100 to 30 to 10. And now, Muslim was alone in the dark in this wretched city. He hated this city. Kufa had betrayed Ali once again. When Ali was alive, they would hardly fight for him. Some of them even became a Khawarij and fought against him. The men who murdered Ali were from Kufa, as was the man who almost murdered Hassan. And now they completed their betrayal by abandoning Hussein. Muslims' hearts sank when he thought about his cousin. He had to get word to him. Hussein must not come to Kufa. Darul Imaro, Al-Kufa, Sitina Senator Hijriya. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 60 AH. The Shurta flung Muslim Ibn Akhil at Ubaidullah's feet. It's all coming together, he thought to himself. Yesterday, barricaded inside the palace with the mob screaming outside, he dared not hope it would end like this. But his Shurta were swift and worked efficiently. His father had always told him he was only as strong as the men who supported him. Rather than try to fight the mob, the Shurta dispersed among the crowd and spread rumors and fears. They rode throughout the city, intercepting and arresting anyone trying to join the mob. They encouraged the women to bring their men back home. By nightfall, the mob was gone. Umbaidullah remembered climbing to the roof and looking over the walls and seeing no one there. The momentum had swung back his way and he meant to take advantage of it. He returned to the masjid and ordered the call to prayer. He sent out word that anyone who came to the masjid would be guaranteed safe conduct. All would be forgiven so long as they obeyed this simple order. Within minutes, the masjid was packed. Men were jostling and pushing each other to make room and hundreds spilled out the main building into the courtyard. It was one of the largest crowds the city had ever seen. Umbaidullah led the prayer, his shurta forming a protective knot around him. After the prayer, he confirmed his guarantee of safe conduct but insisted there was still work to do. Muslim Ibn Akil was on the loose, he had told them. He promised a hefty reward for anyone who brought him in and a severe punishment for anyone who harbored him. And now, here was the fool who tried to defeat the regime. Umbaidullah looked Muslim Ibn Akil over, surprised that such an ordinary man had caused so much trouble. Muslim had almost turned the city against Banu Umayyah. He had gathered thousands of pledges for Hussein. He had turned Hani and Shadik against him and ensnared them in a murderous plot. He had led an army against the regime and came close to taking over the palace. Muslim was not a general, nor a warrior, nor a politician. He shuddered to think what would happen if Hussein made it to Kufa. Where are your manners? shouted one of the Shurta. Give the governor the greetings. Why should I ask peace for someone who wants my head? asked Muslim Ibn Akil. If he didn't want to kill me, I would shower him with all sorts of greetings. 
Mm, that makes sense, said Obedula, nodding, because you most certainly will die. You came to this city and brought disunity where the people were united and spoke in one voice. You caused divisions and made them fight each other with your rebellious plotting. Uh, I, d I did not mean for any of that to happen, said Muslim, shaking his head. The people claimed that your father had killed their best men, usurped their property, and shed their blood. We only wanted to bring justice and the law's rule. Abedullah scoffed. <laughs> Who gave you the right to do that? That is the right of the regime. That's all we've been doing while you were off drinking wine in Medina. This time Muslim laughed. <laughs> if you believe I drink wine, then you are certainly blind and foolish. It is your man in Damascus who drinks wine. And even so, I would rather be known as someone who drinks wine than someone who drinks the blood of the Muslims, someone who takes life without cause, someone who spreads corruption throughout the land. You liar! Obedullah shouted. You and the rest of Banu Hashim are the ones spreading corruption. You want what Allah has given Banu Umayyah, but you don't understand that Allah has denied your man in Mecca and his father because they are not worthy of it. If they are not worthy of it, then who is? Isn't it obvious? Amir al-Mu'minin Yazid ibn Mu'awiyah. He is the caliph by Allah's decree. Muslim chuckled and shook his head again. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I'm just going to let Allah judge on that one. Ubaidullah had never seen such impudence. He had never known someone so disrespectful in the face of sure death. By Allah, he said, gritting his teeth, may Allah kill me if I don't kill you in a way no Muslim has ever been killed before. Yeah, leave it to you to invent new ways of committing evil. Obedullah lost it when he heard that last line. He did not remember exactly what he said, but he knew he launched a tirade of curses toward Muslim Ibn Aqil, Hussein, and Ali. Then he gave the order for Muslim to be executed. Darul Imara Al Kufa, Satina Sana to Hijriya. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 60 AH. Muslim Ibn Akil knelt on the stone roof of the palace. The sun was edging towards the horizon and the worst heat of the day had dissipated. A faint breeze blew across his face. The Shurta ripped off his shirt and robe until he was only wearing his lower garment. They discussed the logistics of what to do with his head after it came off. After the failed uprising the day before, Muslim wandered the city until he found an old woman's home. He begged for a drink of water and a place to rest. When the woman found out he was Muslim Ibn Aqil, she was more than happy to help him. She was a kinda and had no love for Ubaidullah after what his father did to Hujr Ibn Adi. But her adult son was not so pleased. Muslim woke the next morning to the sound of hoofbeats coming down the path. Sixty men had arrived to arrest Muslim, but he was determined not to be taken alive. Muslim had grabbed his sword just as the shurta burst through the widow's door. A brief fight broke out where Muslim cut one man in the shoulder and another in the head, but the shurta overpowered Muslim and beat him to the ground. They kept beating him until Muhammad ibn Ashath ordered them to stop. Then Muslim was put in chains, placed on top of a mule, and sent back to the palace. After Ubaidullah gave the order for his execution, Muslim happened to see a familiar face. 
It was none other than Umar ibn Sa'ad, the son of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, the great Sahaba in general. Muslim pleaded with Umar ibn Sa'ad to fulfill his final requests. At first, Umar did not even want to acknowledge him. But Ubaidullah ordered Umar to listen to Muslim and see what he had to say. Muslim asked Umar ibn Sa'ad to repay a debt and make sure his body was properly buried. But the most important thing, Muslim told him, is that you send someone to Hussein and tell him to stay in Mecca. He thinks the people here are with him and, and he's probably on his way. Omar ibn Sa'ad seemed reluctant to help and Muslim was not sure if Hussein would get the message. So Muslim asked the same of Muhammad ibn Ashaf. Muslim relaxed when the Shurata captain promised to notify Hussein. At least he could die knowing Hussein would be spared. Someone stepped forward and ordered Muslim to bend his neck. He knew this was the man he had injured during his capture. He whispered a silent prayer, asking Allah for forgiveness and a place with his angels and his messenger. He heard a sword slide out of its scabbard. He saw the shadow of an arm raised aloft. Bismillah, said the executioner, and then it was over. Al-Haram, Makkatun Mukarrama, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya. The Sacred Precinct, Mecca, 60 AH. Hussein ibn Ali was well aware this might be his last Umrah. Twenty-five years earlier, his father had left the Hijaz for Iraq and never came back. Hussein did not know what to expect when he got to Kufa. Even though Muslim promised there were thousands of people pledged to him, he had no idea what Banu Umayyah might do. As he trotted around the Kaaba, he thought of his grandfather's flight from Mecca to Medina so many years before. He also thought about his father's role in that famous trip. It was a story his family loved to tell and retell. The Quraysh knew Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was planning to migrate to Medina. Dozens of his followers had already made the trip. If the Messenger of Allah made it to Medina, he'd set up a rival city in Arabia and that could not be tolerated. They decided it was time to kill Prophet Muhammad, but there was one sticking point. Prophet Muhammad belonged to Banu Hashim and they were quite large and powerful. Though most had not accepted Islam, Banu Hashim would not tolerate Muhammad's murder. Instead, the Ashraf of Mecca came up with another idea. Rather than leave it up to one man to kill Muhammad, how about they all take a hand in the deed? If they assigned one man from each of the major clans of Quraysh, then they would all share in Muhammad's death. Banu Hashim would be angry, but they could not take on the entire city of Mecca. They'd be forced to accept the blood money and all of the clans would chip in to pay that off. Allah sent an angel to warn his messenger of their plot and he left for Medina with Abu Bakr earlier than expected. But he could not leave behind an empty bed. If the Quraysh saw the bed was empty, they would know the Prophet had left and give chase. To give himself some time, he asked Ali to sleep in his bed that night. Despite the danger, Ali readily agreed. While the Qurayshi assassins waited for the early morning hours to attack, Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr were racing towards Medina. The next part always amused Hussein, even though he must have heard the story a thousand times. When the Quraysh burst into the Prophet's house, Ali, no more than 20 years old, sat up rubbing his eyes and smiling brightly. The Quraysh were besides themselves with anger and briefly considered killing Ali instead. 
But they changed their minds when they realized Muhammad's mission would continue and they still have to pay the blood money. Hussein finished his seven circuits of the Kaaba and headed for the small hills of Safa and Marwa. Once there, he ran back and forth between them seven times. This ritual commemorated Hajar, the mother of Prophet Ismail, as she looked for water for her thirsty babe. Exhausted from all the running, Hussein sat down and cut a few locks of hair from his head. With that, he left the sacred state of Ihram and finalized his Umrah. As he made his way through the winding streets of Mecca, Ibn Zubair caught up with him once again. Hussein sighed. He was getting a little tired of these impromptu meetings with Ibn Zubair. Listen to me, Hussein, he said. You don't have to go all the way to Kufa to claim your father's right. Stay here in Mecca. I don't want to repeat the same mistakes of the past, replied Hussein. This was the first time he hinted at any rivalry between them. Look, we won't make the same mistakes, said Ibn Zubair. Stand up at the Kaaba and I will be the first to pledge to you. I will gather both your supporters and my supporters together all around you. Hussein studied Ibn Zubair's face and saw concern. Why would you do that? asked Hussein. I don't trust those Iraqis. They have betrayed your family every step of the way. Stay here, Ibn Fatima, and we'll fight Banu Umayya together. Hussein smiled and clapped Ibn Zubair on the shoulder. No, my friend, I appreciate your concern, but I can't fight in this city. This is a holy city, and I'd rather be killed outside of it than inside of it. <sighs> then, at least don't take your family. Let them stay here, where we can protect them. My people in Kufa don't have that luxury, Hussein replied. The men, women, and children all face the same dangers. I cannot put them in harm's way while my family is safe in Mecca. Ibn Zubair sighed. <sighs> so, when do you leave? Tonight. Our bags are already packed and our transportation is already prepared. I just wanted to perform Umrah before departing. May Allah protect you and bring you success. I mean, replied Hussein, wondering if he'd ever see his friend again. Darul Imaro, Al Kufa, Setina Sanatu Hijriya. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 60 AH. Umar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas waited for Ubaidullah to return from the masjid. The governor had gathered the Ashraf of Kufa and given out rewards for those who helped during the crisis of the past week. The city was eerily quiet after Muslims' beheading. No one walked the streets, no children played, no dogs barked. The only thing that broke the silence was the call to prayer every few hours. When the call was made, the streets briefly came to life as the people walked solemnly to the masjid. Omar ibn Sa'ad had heard about Hussein's plot to overthrow the regime, and while Hussein and Muslims' rebellion was foolish, he could not agree with Ubaidullah's response. The governor's retribution was brutal and thorough. His shurta scoured the city for anyone and everyone associated with Muslim Ibn Aqil. Stipends were canceled, homes were burned, lands were confiscated, entire families were imprisoned, and so many people were killed. Hani ibn Urwa was dragged from his cell and taken to the market to be executed. He fought back but was eventually cut down. His corpse was crucified and posted in the middle of the square. Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid was arrested and thrown into prison. Several young men had been arrested while trying to join the rebellion. These unfortunate souls were imprisoned before joining Muslims' army. 
But since they were in prison, they could not take advantage of Abedullah's amnesty offer. All of them were beheaded. Ibn Sa'ad, said Abedullah, entering the palace with a swarm of heavily armed Ashurta. Please forgive my tardiness. Governing is so hard. Of course, replied Omar ibn Sa'ad. His father was Kufa's first governor, and he knew the work it demanded. I'm pleased to report the rebellion in Dustaba has been put down. Excellent, excellent. Everything is coming together. Our enemies are falling left and right. It does appear you have things under control here, agreed Omar ibn Sa'ad. Almost, said Abedullah. I have men patrolling all the roads between Basra and Kufa, and I have closed off the roads from Mecca and Syria. Nothing goes in or out of Kufa until I have Hussein. Omar ibn Sa'ad felt uneasy. Is that why you summoned me? Yes, you are of the Quraysh. Your father and his father were friends. You are from the Hijaz. No one knows him better than you. There are many people here who know Hussein better than I do. Yeah, but I do not trust the Sharia to Ali. I'm sorry, said Omar ibn Sa'ad. This is not for me. You should consider somebody else. Abedullah sighed. Ah, very well. I guess I'll have to find a new governor for Ray as well. Omar ibn Sa'ad whipped around as if he'd been slapped. What? You heard me, said Abedullah. You either satisfy me regarding Hussein, or you can give up your position as governor of Ray. You just gave me this position, protested Omar ibn Sa'ad. Abedullah shrugged. It is mine to give and take away as I please. If you will not obey me, I'll find someone who will. I just put down one rebellion, and you want me to put down another, and against Hussein ibn Ali no less? Why not? You already have the army and the experience. We are facing a threat to the regime. I need men who are ready to take decisive action. So, you have a decision to make. Are you a man of decisive action or not? Omar ibn Sa'ad could not imagine having a worse decision. No matter what he chose, he would lose. He must have been the unluckiest man on earth. Uh, can I have a day to think this over? Uh, very well, said Abedullah. Take a day, but tomorrow you either give me an answer or you give me back your position. Omar left the palace and began walking the empty streets of Kufa. His father's legacy filled his head. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas was a hard man who was a soldier and strict in his religion and convictions. He had taken over the Muslim armies after Khalid ibn Walid left for Syria. Even though Khalid ibn Walid was more famous, it was Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas who conquered most of Persia. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas feared no man and refused to support either Ali or Muawiyah during their conflict. Later, when Muawiyah ordered the cursing of Ali, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas defied the ruler and refused to obey an unjust law. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas would sooner fight his own son than fight Hussein ibn Ali. His father did not care about positions and titles either. He would have walked away from Abedullah's appointment without a second thought. That's what my father would do, thought Omar ibn Sa'ad, but I am not my father. Alright, Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial and interesting and educational. So let's get into some of the 
uh, names we mentioned in today's show and try to see what was going on in their heads as they made these decisions as best as we can, you know, 1400 years later. As you can see, hopefully I, I, I presented it well enough. You can see that this was an exciting story, lots and ups, lots of ups and downs, lots of emotional roller coaster type stuff going on. But the main star of today's show was Muslim Ibn Aqil. He was Hussein Ibn Ali's younger cousin. And uh, Muslim Ibn Aqil, he wasn't familiar with Kufa, and he wasn't prepared for the politics of Kufa. He got there, he started recruiting people, the enthusiasm was high. He was just way overconfident in the Kufans, their devotion to Hussein and Ali. And I think really he and Hussein underestimated Banu Omeya's response. And we, we're not finished with the story, but I think both of them really underestimated just how harshly and how swiftly Banu Omeya would respond. So there goes that. Next, um, I guess the antagonist of the story is Ubaidullah. Now, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, as you know, he is the son of Ziyad ibn Abihi. Ubaidullah, he believes the lie that was told to his father or that his father tried to perpetrate that he was a member of Banu Umayya, that um, he was, that Ziyad was Muawiyah's half-brother. And most likely, that was not true. But Ubaidullah, he believes this lie, and he sees himself as the savior of the Umayyads. He sees the Umayyads uh, dynasty, their empire, as being attacked on all different sides. And he is completely devoted to the Umayyad cause, and so he sees himself as their savior, and that's part of the reason why, pretty much all the reason why he went completely into this, you know, head first and was determined to stop every single scent of rebellion. Now, Hussein is still in Mecca while uh, Muslim Ibn Aqil was, you know, going through all that hardship and all those difficulties up in Kufa. And Hussein doesn't know what's going on. He is completely misled by all these letters he's receiving. He received letters before he sent his cousin to Kufa with a bunch of um, people in Kufa to inviting him to to um, to uh, Kufa. Then he sends his cousin. He gets more letters from more people. And then his cousin sends him a letter. Muslim Ibn Aqil sends him a letter. Said, come on down. Come back. Come to Kufa. The, the water's good. We're ready for you. The people want you. So Hussein is completely misled. When um, Muslim Ibn Aqil's rebellion falls apart, Hussein is, complete, is completely unaware of all these things that are happening. And so he's ready to leave Mecca, take his whole family with him on this really long and dangerous trip to Kufa. And, well, we'll see how things are, how that goes in the next episode, inshallah. And if you're already familiar with the Battle of Karbala, then you already know what happens. If you're not familiar, once again, as I said before, either you can either check it out yourself, you know, it's, it's all online, or you can wait till I surprise you with it. It's um, it's it's something else. I don't know how else to put it without giving it without giving it away. So, um, so Muslim's letter to um, Hussein in in Mecca confirms Hussein's belief that the people of Mecca want him to come, and so he's completely misled and he's ready to go. And he does all this even though he gets warnings from two high-ranking companions, maybe not as high as Hussein ibn Ali himself was, but still two pretty good um, high-ranking companions, Ibn Abbas and Ibn Zubair. 
both of them warn him like, you know, these people, they're not really for you, man. They tell him that, you know, they're the Kufins, they're, they're not, they're untrustworthy. You know, they haven't, they're asking you to come, but they haven't taken any steps to do anything on their own. Uh, Ibn Abbas put him through some questions and we're reminded, we're reminded of Ibn Abbas's questions to the Khawarij when they turned against Ali. He questioned them to make them think about the, the stuff that they were doing. And Ibn Abbas did the same thing here with Hussein. He questioned him, well, have they done this? And have they done that? And have they done this? And he's able to come to the conclusion that, look, these people aren't trustworthy. These people, they don't really have your best interests in mind, okay? As soon as some, th some hardship comes to them, they're going to turn away and might even turn against you. And while there was some conflict and some friction, I won't say conflict, but friction between Ibn Zubair and Hussein and Mecca, because both of them are kind of like starting their own rebellions in a way against the um, Umayyad dynasty. Still, towards the end, Ibn Zubair is like, look, stay here in Mecca. I'll pledge to you. You can't trust those Iraqis. But Hussein, he believes that this is a religious duty, right? He believes that he's embarking on something similar to what his father did and maybe even what his grandfather did, that he's standing up against evil. And so he sees this as kind of like, um, I hate to say it like this, but like a religious crusade in a way. And he believes that, you know, if he dies while doing this, he's going to go to paradise. He's going to go to heaven. And so he's determined to see this thing through all the way to the end. And then one of the main characters in the story is the city of Kufa itself. And we did go into some very detailed information about how unstable and volatile um, Kufa was. So I don't really have to belabor that point anymore. I think I, I gave you some pretty good detail about how all these different levels, levels of society made Kufa this, you know, I don't know, hotbed of friction, of of. I don't know, uprising and rebellions and revolts and all sorts of problems. So I think you kind of get that already. So that's one you understand. The city of Kufa itself was was notorious back then as being very fickle, as being, you know, filled with people who can never be satisfied. First they go this side, then go that side, then go another side. They never really learn to pick a pick a side and or choose a side to stick with it. But, you know, this saga between um Banu Omeya between the Sharia and between the city of Kufa, it's not over yet. There's still more to come. Okay, keep in mind, even though this was a long episode, we're still in the first year of Yazid ibn Muawiyah's caliphate. All right, <laughs> we're still very, very early in this thing. So there's a whole lot more to come. So that's uh, about it for the insights into the characters. Just want to fill you in with a little bit of homework, real, real quick. My homework. Um, anyway. I recently had a meeting with uh, my writers and my producers and my entire marketing team for this show. And so that basically means I had a meeting with myself because this is a one-man show. My point is saying this, I, I need your help to help spread this show to others. Alhamdulillah, I get a good number of downloads whenever I, I put it out there, but you know, I, I would like more. I want more and more people to hear about this show. I think that we're doing some very important um, stuff here by making this complex topic of Islamic history digestible, entertaining, and accessible for the common person. And so I've done my best to make it easy for you to share with others. Inshallah, all you have to do is click on a few links. 
Uh, if you have a, a device that you're listening to this on, there are links in the uh, podcast episode description. Now, there's so many different devices, so many different podcast apps that you can use. I personally use Pocket Cast, and I know it works well in that one. But whatever one you use, hopefully will still work. I don't know about iPhone and any other ones, but still, the links are there. There are links to share this episode on Facebook, on Twitter, and even via email. And if you are listening to this on a computer, there'll be links also in the show notes. And I'll mention the show notes page in just a moment. So inshallah, I hope that you can uh, find it in yourself to take a few seconds just to click. <laughs> it's just a click. You know, just move your thumb up and down. I know you might be driving. Maybe you can't do it while you're driving or whatever. But do the best you can, inshallah. If you can just share this with someone else, doesn't cost you anything. But, you know, the energy expe expelled when you move your thumb up and down. If you can do that for me, inshallah, may Allah reward you. I'll be very, very happy. Finally, once again, the show notes uh, will be available. For this episode, will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash muslim, M-U-S-L-I-M. And once you get to the um, show notes page there'll be lots of stuff there that um i'll, I'll recap that in just a moment uh, the muslim podcast of the week for this week is not really a muslim podcast it's actually a comedy podcast called you made it weird it is not a muslim podcast but it has a muslim comedian named Azhar usman as Azhar usman as a guest and uh Azhar usman and the uh, the host of the show, I think his name is Pete Holmes, comedian Pete Holmes. They had um, a very interesting discussion about all sorts of things. They discussed this, um, Islam, of course. They talked politics, comedy, uh, show business, uh, philosophy. It was a very interesting show, and uh, you know, I encourage you to listen to it. Be be aware that this is two. This is a discussion between two comics, two comedians, and so there is some foul language. There is, you know, this is not a show for children. So I, I wouldn't suggest you listen to this with your young kids. But I think it's a very interesting show. I also warn you, don't take your Islam from this show. This show, there are many other better resources I would I would suggest to you to learn about Islam. But to um, maybe have a better understanding of how, of how people in show business reconcile Islam with show business, maybe it might help you with that. Maybe it might give you a different um aspect and how to share Islam with non-Muslims. Um, I think it has lots of benefit to it, but not for learning Islam. Don't do don't do for that. Okay. I don't agree with everything uh, Brother Azhar says, but I, I do um, I did enjoy the show and I like the way he um he presented his information. All right, so recap. Show notes page. If you go there, inshallah, you're going to get, of course, links to share this show with everybody else. Of course, links to support the show, which you can do as patreon.com uh, slash Islamic history and a transcript of the show, as always. And finally, a link to the podcast of the week, which is um, You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes and with his guest, uh, Azhar Usman. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Inshallah, I'm, hope, I'm hoping I will have another episode out for you very soon. Um, Inshallah, I hope I'll have it out very soon. I've already done the research. I just got to put together the show. So we'll see how that works out. We're going to close out right now with a couple of minutes uh, of excerpt, an excerpt from uh, You Made It Weird with um, Azhar Usman as the guest. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to... We lost the... Uh, no, no, plot, it goes back so, to what we're saying. Yeah. 
We're talking about spending five. I sound like. Oh, right. I feel like I sound like a Muslim father being like. I love it. You spend all this time with Please, the Netflix. Give me some advice. I have four boys. Ah, I have no, four I, sons. I can't even touch it. That's the other thing, by the way, where yeah. the fork in the road with all you guys moving to New York, LA, and I'm just like in Chicago. I was doing international stuff and started getting like this. Have you heard of the Chitlin Circuit? Yeah, of course. And the Borscht Belt? So Is I, it the same thing? Though the Borscht Belt was the Jewish. Oh, uh, of course. The black circuit. The Catskills. So I, I have basically been involved very quietly and off the radar in, uh, in, in an enterprise that I would describe as creating and developing the kebab circuit. The kebab circuit. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been to... able to just stand up in like 28 countries. Yeah. Toured all over the country, colleges, whatever. Is this the Russell but Peters market? Kind of, but it's like even more niche. Yeah, I know. Because it's brown, Muslim, yeah. international. Allah made like, me funny. Allah made me funny was one project, yeah. And then just also just as an individual. But you're, just, this, you're an interesting story. You should be talking to Terry Gross right now. This is a step down for you. Well, please, if, if anybody at NPR and Fresh Air is listening to this, I, yeah. I love uh, Terry Gross. I love you. I'm in love <laughs> with you. And I think you're a national treasure. <laughs> I actually believe very strongly, man, philosophically, I've arrived at this by being in show business now for a minute, uh, that part of the problem, if you will, of how we got to where we're at as a country, as a nation, as a world, where the president of the United States is, is calling these news media outlets fake news, mm -hmm. is corporate media. Mm -hmm. The fact that six conglomerates control mass media in the United States, basically, mm -hmm. you know, it's literally six companies, man, Comcast, Disney, 21st Century Fox, Time Warner, CBS Corporation, and Viacom. I can't name six anything. <laughs> this is in my one-man show. I so. couldn't name six books. <laughs> <laughs>